online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. This week, the English wine revolution. At the turn of the century, it was still a joke, but nobody's laughing now. Our winemakers are on a roll. Henry Jeffries joins me to talk about his new book, Vines in a Cold Climate charting the story of those pioneers who defied the odds to make Britain fizz. It's a story of cooperation, conflict, inspiration, perspiration, hope and doubt. Rarely could a back cover synopsis be more compelling and indeed accurate because the story of wine production in the UK, for which we mean England and a little bit of Wales, is one of the great surprise success stories of this millennium. As the last century ended, the revolution began in earnest, starting with sparkling, though this country's still wines are also winning new acclaim more recently with the French now keen for a slice of the action. Uh, That's what it's come to. Henry Jeffries is an award-winning author and he's turned his attention to the story for Vines in a Cold Climate, which is released this week. And I'm delighted to say that Henry joins me now. Hello, Henry. Hello. Thank you for having me. Welcome to The Drinking Hour. It's a great pleasure. I should say, you know, at the outset, I really enjoyed this book as uh, holiday reading uh, over the last uh, couple of weeks. So congratulations on uh, a really compelling bit of uh, writing. We should start with a bit of history, just as as you kind of do uh, in the, in the book. English wine has had, it's fair to say, quite a few false starts, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's most most books on the subject go back to the Roman times, but there isn't there isn't really a massive amount of evidence for viticulture in Roman times, and even if there is, there's no continuity at all, so it's slightly irrelevant. So I did, I did touch on it very briefly. And then there was a, a sort of flowering in the early medieval period. The climate was a bit warmer. In the Doomsday Book, there's lots of evidence of, of vines. Well, not evidence, there's lots of information about vines for, for, for tax purposes and stuff. And you can hear it in the place names, like kind of Winchester, anything with a vin in it or a win, often means there were vines there. So southern England, sort of up to East Anglia, up into the Midlands, um, was, you know, there were, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't anything compared with sort of Bordeaux or, or, or Italy, but there was, a, there was a lot of it going on. Um, and I suppose sort of two things put an end to that. First of all was Bordeaux, where, where you, when you can get oceans of delicious red wine from just over the river, so when, um, just over the water. So when uh, Bordeaux became part of the English crown, um, when El- Eleanor of Aquitaine married Henry II, suddenly it's like, why struggle to grow grapes in Kent when you've got France, you know, so obviously, and then the climate got a lot colder around the 14th century as well. You had what is known as the Little Ice Age and viticulture almost completely died out. And then with a few, you know, there were a few eccentrics growing grapes 
what's his name, Peeps, visits a, 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 a vineyard in Walthamstow. There was Payne's Hill in Surrey. But really, you know, and it was, you know, it would have been just an extraordinary amount of work. Um, and when you've got Portuguese, Spanish, you know, if you think about Britain was at the centre of global trade. So why would you bother, really? I was fascinated to read that there was early Pinot Noir in Kent, because we tend to think about the darker years for English wine involving very strange Germanic uh, hybrids and crosses and so forth. But actually, this is Pinot, something that England in the finest places is now excelling at, although it's very small scale. This is Pinot Noir in Kent from hundreds of years ago, isn't it? Yes, it was um, discovered by Edward Hyams in a, in a uh, graveyard in a Rutum in, in, in Kent, not far from Maidstone. And it's been discovered to be a clone of Pinot Noir. And no one is quite sure how, how it got there. But considering lots of landowners used to have vines, if just for decorative purposes, it's not a, you know, it's not inconceivable how it how it how it got there but there were some other french vines that were planted there was a vineyard in paynes hill in surrey that had uh, probably had pinot mernier it's hard to know um, and then castle cock in south wales had gamay planted so there were you know there were french varieties being planted it's just i think it would have been very very infrequently they would have been ripe enough to make a good red wine out of you have a rye turn of phrase and there are some fantastically english names from central casting among those early wine pioneers uh major general sir guy salisbury jones at hambledon i yeah. think hugh yeah, king margaret yeah, Moore brown uh john yeah. patrick crichton stewart we've got the marquis of butte charles hamilton the duke of abercorn it sounds a bit like a character list for an agatha christie murder mystery early english wine doesn't it it was there were a lot of toffs involved yeah a lot of a lot of colonels and majors and Sort of people with blazers on doing it as a there's a wonderful video if 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 our people after they've listened to it want to go on the Hambledon website and it was from a Pathé News thing of a vintage at Hambledon in Hampshire in the 1960s and everybody's wearing like a tweed suit ties you know kind of doing doing the doing the harvest and I just thought I just thought it was wonderful it just kind of showed the sort of that sort of 1950s spirit of, you know, make do and wonderful. Yeah, quite a few crusty ex-military types. Um, is, is there any reason that that was the case? Is it just a kind of money thing? Yeah, well, I think it was It was a, having a good pension helped. So I think a lot of these people, they've, you know, they've been in the military, reached a certain rank. Most of them were probably quite eccentric, you know, and I think the the military was a, was, was a bit of a breeding ground for eccentrics, but also they were, you know, they were they were doers. You know, they'd been in the army, they'd done things, they'd built bridges, they'd, you know, they'd fought a war. You know, they thought they thought they could do things. So they you know, they thought, well, I've got my pension, I've got some got some land in Hampshire. Why not try and make wine? You know, it was a sort of you know, an optimistic generation, I think, that kind of fifties generation. They thought 
we can do this. I mean, they, it, it turned out that they it was a lot harder than they than they thought it would be. But they, you know, you've got to admire their spirit. Yes, and uh, that history is really compelling. But actually, you begin the book in the introduction, um, setting the scene in a sodden Kent vineyard, um, having been invited to plant a vine for Tattinger's first English vineyard. And it's a really apt place to start because it's a, a physical symbol of how seriously English wine has been taken in recent years, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It was um, It was a wonderful day out, um, but also it was, you know, perhaps they didn't pick the best weather for it. So we were in May planting Pinot, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Pinot Mernier vines as part of a sort of publicity stunt for Tattinger for their domain Evremont Vineyard, which is actually very near where I live now in, in Chillum in, in Kent. And the rain was horizontal. It was muddy. It was just, and it must have, they must have just thought, you know, what, what are we doing here? And it just looked, you go there now and it's incredible. It's just acre after acre of vines. I went last July and there were grapes and it just looked amazing. At the time it looked like a, just a muddy field in Kent. And you just thought, this is a bit crazy, but obviously they hadn't done it on a whim. You know, they'd invested millions in research, in consultants. And, you know, I think I think what they, the, the first wines that come out of there will be extraordinarily impressive. But it's still, there's still an incongruity about being in field in Southern England and having vines, I, I think, which, and I think that's something that probably won't go away for some time. You don't know which vine it was. You didn't leave a little label saying Henry's vine or well, anything then. Yeah, well, apparently some people planted theirs in the wrong place. So there was some Chardonnay mixed up with some Pinot Noir. So if that was me, you know, <laughs> sorry, Pierre Emmanuel. <laughs> yes, I don't, I, don't, I don't know. But yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure, it, I'm sure the wines will be great in it and I won't have spoiled them. If someone who doesn't know this story and obviously hasn't yet read the book is listening, thinking, Tattinger, England, I didn't know you could get that. Um, you can't yet, can you? No, it comes out next year, probably. That's going to be a big deal, isn't it? It's going to be a huge deal. And I think they're going to be judged by the very finest in the country. So if they're not as good as Coates and Seeley or Nye Timber, then people are going to be like, ooh, you know, are they doing the right thing? But obviously, you know, the vines are young, as you know, in sparkling wine, aging is, well, age, I was going to say aging is everything, but aging isn't everything, but aging is a huge part of the flavour as well. So, you know, I think the yeah. wines, there's no doubt the wines will be good. They might, Are they going to be the best in the country? They might not be. Will will they get there in the end? Almost certainly. You know, they're, you know champagne companies work on a different timescale to, 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 to the rest of us, or, or even to other wine companies. They've got to work 10, 20, 30 years in advance. So, you know, they're, they're experienced. They, you know, it's Tattinger, who've obviously been doing it a long time. Hatch Mansfield, they've, the British distributor, they've been doing it a long time. So, you know, they're going to look at it with a long-term thing and just, you know, if they get some criticism for the first vintages, I don't think they're really going to care. Very excited to taste it. Um, it's, um, I hadn't previously understood the rationale for the name of their English cuvee, Tell us a little bit about the man who inspired the name for Tattinger's first English sparkling wine. Yes, he was, um, I can't remember his full title, but he was the something, the Duke de saint Evremont, and he was a the French ambassador 
to London. And he was famous for, first of all, he probably introduced champagne to the court of King Charles II. So this was 1660s restoration. You know, the, um, it was the end of the sort of Puritan Cromwell era and everyone was really up for having as much fun as possible. Um, and he introduced champagne from France. And then probably what happened was that this wine came over in barrels, um, in the winter and began re-fermenting again in the, in the spring. So people had sparkling champagne and then bottles strong bottles were invented around the same time in in england so they would have experimented with bottling this wine and everyone was a notorious notoriously louche he had these kind of parties where people drank champagne out of women's shoes and all kinds of kind of naughtiness went on uh, so he's a very good very good amp- he was a very good amp- he was one of the first champagne ambassadors you know one of the people who brought kind of glamour and naughtiness and stuff to wine. So so he's he, he's the sort of model for... And if you, you've met Pierre-Emmanuel Tattinger, who's the head of the company, <laughs> he's a naughty man with a gleam in his eye. You know, he made this wonderful, risque <laughs> speech about the, the wonders of British women and how, how he has loved so many of them. It was, um, yeah, it was glorious. It was glorious, yeah. So uh, we need more people yeah, like that in wine. The old block. Worth remarking, too on the invention of uh, champagne, effectively, that traditional method, what we used to call method champenoir, until uh, the champenoir got uh, litigious about the uh, the use of the term. But um, there are those who um, uh, somewhat uh, arrogantly uh, say sometimes, we invented the stuff. But actually, um, reading your book, you know, that, that there's, um, we, we have a a valid claim to have had a at least a very significant role in the development of champagne over here, this side of the channel, don't we? Definitely, yes. Well, as, as I mentioned before, the strong glass wine bottle was invented probably around the 1630s by Sir Kenan Digby. Previously, wine bottles were more like decanters. They were very fragile. But this new kind of glass that was powered by, the furnaces were powered by, by coal, um, was, was much, much stronger. And around the 1660s, or, or even earlier, people were, scientists at the Royal Society were experimenting with sparkling cider, sparkling wine. So they'd put the still fermenting wine or cider into the bottle, cork it, leave it for a while and create a pet gnat, what we would call a, a pet gnat. Um, or they would add sugar to try and bolster the fermentation. So very, very early method champenoir. And that was probably going on 30, 40, 50 years before that sort of thing was happening in France. But then the whole method champenoir is so much more complicated than that. You know, it, it, you've got all the, um, the, the sort of two-stage process, the removing the yeast, you know, the dosage, all that kind of stuff. And turning what these English scientists were experimenting with at home into an internationally recognized consistent industry is what the French have done. You know, they sort of took a sort of English spark and turned it into this huge so you can't I mean it, it's a silly thing to say to say that the English invented champagne because obviously, you know, the Champenois invented champagne. Um but the techno the the sort of germ for it probably came from England. Really interesting. How did you go about uh, deciding uh, what to 
feature in the book because you're at pains to point out in the introduction that it's not a guide to English wineries that you've written. It's a, a story about the English wine revolution. So how did you decide sort of what to, to include and what not to include? Because there are literally probably hundreds of English producers now, aren't there? Yeah, it was a, it was a really, really tough one. And at one point I was going to do it as a sort of tour de Angleterre, you know, in Kent, you have this and go over the border into Sussex and you, and you have this. And it's just, it was just too much going on. So the early days were, were, were quite, quite straightforward because I talked to people like Stephen Skelton, Peter Hall, you know, the kind of people who are still doing it today. And there aren't actually that many pioneers from the 60s and 70s who are either still alive or still in business. So that part of the book was reasonably easy. And then I sort of uncovered people who I hadn't really heard of, like Kit Lindlar, who's now a, um, he's now a priest in East Anglia, but he made the first vintages at Nightimber. So just uncovering people like that was, was brilliant. And then, you know, obviously the sort of the Nightimber story is very big and I was very lucky enough to speak to Stuart Moss, Sandy and Stuart Moss were the founders. And I spoke to him down the line from, Santa Barbara just before he died. Um, so that was, again, an incredible stroke of luck being able to, to talk to him. But then as you get towards the present day, it just kind of sort of spun out of control. There's just too much going on. So I, in the end, I just stopped talk. I stopped research because I just had hours and hours of interviews. And just basically, I kind of thought, what, what types of producers are there? So you've got like, you know, you've got Nightimber, you've got Ridgeview, you've got family producers, you've got people who specialise in still wine, you've got people who make wine under railway arches in Battersea. And so I would sort of pick people who represented a sort of type um, and then would go into quite a lot of detail about them, which was great because it meant it kind of kept things under control. But it also meant that there's producers who I love, like Artillium or Greyfriars, who I don't even mention or only in passing, just because if I talked to them, then it would have just sent me down, it would have got out of control and I would never have finished the book. So it was, it was, re it was really, it was really tricky. And I had to make a very conscious decision actually just to stop researching it and just get writing. And right up until the last minute, I was, people would say, oh, you've got to talk to so-and-so and just be like, oh, well, okay, I'll talk to, you know, him. And then I'd be like, ah, but that's just, opened up a whole kind of thing. So you, at some point you've just got to, my publishers were very keen to get it out this year. And that which meant that I had to, in the end, be really brutal. So there's just so many brilliant producers who, who aren't even mentioned, which I'm really sad about. It's interesting you talk about the thought you had to do a tour d'Angleterre, um, and then you decided not to do that. And, and that was almost certainly the right decision because Oz Clark has done that anyway and Oz is Oz. So what you've done yeah. is um, add something new and really different to the lexicon, if you like, uh, with this particular work. Did you sort of fear that there was nothing new to add when you were starting out? I mean, what, what inspired you to, to, to kind of take this on? I, well, I mean, I, I think that's just right. I read Oz's book and I thought, you know, it's Oz, you know, he, he knows it, he knows it backwards. He's got the stories and what he's got more than anything else is the ability to remember what it tasted like in 1976, um, which mm. I don't have. I can't put wine into words. Even if I tried it, I couldn't put wine into words like Oz 
has, and I don't have his depth of knowledge. So I just thought, how can I do it so that it's different to Oz? And I thought, and, and, and the, the, what I decided was, it was to, Oz is very avuncular. He's very kind of, he's a, he's a sort of bridges, not walls type person. You know, he's, he's kind of open and big hearted. And that really comes out mm. in the book. I thought I would do it almost not quite from the opposite perspective, but look for where people aren't getting along. Look at points of conflict. Look at arguments. Look at people who perhaps aren't so immediately appealing. You know, there's a lot of big characters in the book, some of whom people might not like, some of whom are, are, are really difficult people. And I would thought, well, don't gloss over that. You know, bring it out. You know, let these people talk and then let people make, make up their own minds. So it was it was to sort of do the opposite to all look for angles look for look for conflict and so that's sort of sort of how how i did it approach it like a yeah. journalist rather yeah. than rather than a kind of um a, 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 a presenter a television presenter i think is, is how yeah. i thought i'd do it and i th- i think that's absolutely right because what you've ended up with what, is something um completely different to what um oz did and i think that's um you know uh, that that that's just just great just perfect and actually it's interesting you talk about bridges rather than walls because you you kind of um you occasion you're not afraid to sort of stick the boot in or or reference the fact that someone's not especially popular or or whatever there's uh, i think simon heffer's reviewed the book and and uh, describes you at one point as as arch i think even and uh, it, it, you have to be kind of bold to do that i think uh, but then it is um a, an authentic tone of voice which is uh dare i say very you although i don't i'm not trying to tell you your arch by the way but you're 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 not afraid of uh, of anyone here i don't think well I, th- I think the way i've looked at it is i like difficult people i you know my my I was going to say my father's a difficult person, but you know, we have very difficult people in my family. Some of my favorite people are really difficult. Um, So I don't really have a problem bringing that out because I don't see it as a, as an insult. So someone like Stephen Skelton, who is a huge character in the book and was hugely helpful in writing the book. And I'm very fond of Stephen and I don't think it would be half as good without his help is a brutally honest and clearly quite a difficult man. And I don't think there's a, I don't have a, you know, I haven't, wasn't reluctant at all to bring that out in the book. Cause I, I think, you know, I think I've handled him very honestly and even affectionately cause I, cause I like him. Um, mm. And I just, so I think as long as I'm not trying to stitch anyone up, stitch anyone up, which, which I'm not, I was just, you know, if they said something outrageous or said something, if they said something really outrageous, then I did check with them and say, you know, there were a couple of times where people you know, we'd had a few drinks, they said something. And then I just checked and they said, you know, let's, so I, ha- I haven't, it's not warts and all. There, there are, you know, there's so much stuff that didn't go in. I mean, oh my God, like the, the sort of, the stuff about the early days of Chapel Down, the stuff that Owen Elias told me about dodgy creditors, dodgy investors, people he described as outright crooks, um, who I won't mention, obviously, um that all got cut out so you know the the uh, the uncut version maybe i'll do that in a few years the uncut version would be even better yeah chapel down is one of those great names that's uh, featured from the early pioneers and uh, that's had a a really interesting history um as has uh, nye timber you've mentioned them already uh it's difficult to talk about english sparkling wine without referencing nye timber because it's just such an extraordinary brand already 
And it's had um, a very interesting history because it's it's had a number of different parents, hasn't it? Yes. Well, it was, you know, it's the emblematic English producer. You know, before that, it was people trying to make German-style wines in, in sort of Kent and Sussex and the West Country. You know, you know people making good wine. Um, but the ambition they brought was no one else had ever, no one else had done it. They, they, then they brought with them the ambition to try and make a champagne-style sparkling wine, which people had done before. You know, they weren't the first to do it. But to do it on a kind of, champ, with a champagne-like ambition, to take on the Champenois, to age it properly. You know, they, the first vintage was 92. They didn't release it till the end of 96. So it had three, maybe four years on its lees. Um, you know, they, Stuart wouldn't release it until it's ready. And I've tried the 92 Blanc de Blanc. I tried it recently, a couple of years ago. It's just phenomenal. You know, it's just, you know, hazelnuts and beautiful fizz and the fruit. It's all still there. Um, so they just they just transformed it. But they but what they ran into, I think, is the problem with all that all sparkling wine producers run into is that they became a victim of their own success, where in order to expand you need to keep laying down stock. So you need to keep on sucking in more and more money so that you can lay down more and more stock. And actually, a big harvest can be a problem because you've got to get it all in bottle and store it somewhere and sit on it for three or four years. So you're just sitting on more and more cash. So even though they were they were wealthy, he made his money um, in dental supplies and she was a antiques dealer. You know, they had lots of money. That they didn't really have enough to fulfil their ambitions, and I think perhaps they weren't as good as as good a businessman as they were winemakers. I think that that's probably probably fair to say. Um, so they sold up in two thousand, having or two thousand one, having made fantastically good wines, but never really made any money. That they told me that it was just beginning to break even when they sold up. I'm you know I'm not sure whether they could have turned it into a viable business. And then they it was bought by Andy Hill, who was a songwriter who wrote a song for Bucks Fizz, you know, appropriately enough, making your mind up. And I oh. don't think he didn't have the money for it either. And apparently, according to Stephen Skelton, he went through a divorce quite soon afterwards. But I think the wines were still good. Dermot Sugru was, was the winemaker. He's a now set up his own project he went to Whiston afterwards now you know fantastic so I think the wines were very good but they couldn't turn it into a into a in, into what into a, a big sparkling wine brand someone's just brought me a cup of tea isn't that brilliant nice and then now they have Eric Harima in charge who is a billionaire you know he's a, a, a sort of shipping magnet entrepreneur he's a Dutchman um, and he's another tremendously divisive figure in English wine he's you know there've been all kinds of things about him which are all in the public record about him being very difficult to work with, disgruntled employees have all gone on the record. But at the same time, he took on um, Brad Greatrix and Sherry, Sherry Spriggs, husband and wife wine, winemaking couple from Canada, who've been with him since the very beginning. So he clearly knows how to manage the right people. Um, and they've And he's done it. You know, he's turned Nightimber into the emblematic English sparkling wine. Um, and the quality is phenomenal. For, you know, the classic cuvee, non-vintage, 
it's it's definitely up there with the with, with the best wines in the country. And then you go up to the single vineyard one, which I just think is is phenomenal. Mm. Lo- lovely wines. And I spoke you know, I, I spoke to him. You know, he I didn't actually meet him, but we spoke down the line, and I you know I asked asked him about whether his reputation for being difficult was deserved. And he sort of sort of said, yeah, you know, I'm difficult. I'm a perfectionist. I'm perhaps not very easy to work with. So that was great. It was brilliant having him in there because he is a big personality. And, and he's I done like so much him. for English sparkling wine beyond Night Timber, hasn't he? This is the thing. You look at the the um, the, the, the marketing, the merchandising, the the converted London route master they have for tastings. Um, the money that he's invested in Nightimber has, um, to use that old expression, you know, a, a rising tide lifts all boats. You know, that Nightimber has done that for the category more generally, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, they have. And, you know, and, and Nightimber could, I think, stand very aloof from English wine because it is, you know, it's the sort of, uh, you know, it's like Vegas, Sicilia, and Ribera del Duero, you know, it's so above and sort of almost separate. But you know, they they are they're a big part of Wine GB. They're always at the tastings. You can just drop Brad a line, and he'll 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 answer the question. So you know, they're very uh, they 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 were very helpful with the book. So um, very interesting. But what what was also very interesting was you know, Night Timber are obviously they get the column inches, but someone like Ridgeview has been almost as influential with none of the press. You know, if you if you think about when the English wine revolution, as I call it, happened in the 90s, everyone was talking about Nightimber, but Ridgeview were the ones who were actually in the shops making wine for Waitrose, Lathwaite. If you tried an English sparkling wine in the 90s, more likely than not, it was Ridgeview rather than Nightimber. Yeah, Mike so, Roberts, never, never um, sadly no longer with us, was, was obviously, as, as you say in the book, you know, truly a pioneer and the business now run uh, by his daughter Tamara and son Simon both absolutely lovely very gentle obviously very astute um, people but you you kind of make that point in the book don't you they they kind of warrant a far greater profile at Ridgeview than they actually get yeah and they would be the first they would be the first to admit that and I think it's as you said it's that sort of gentleness. So, you know, Simon's very softly spoken and diffident. Tamara is a brilliant businesswoman. You know, she's but she's a numbers person. You know, she's a she's the boffin in the back room, making sure that you know, making sure that their plans for expansion work out. And what they don't have is Mark Driver or Dermot Sugru or you know someone like that who is banging the drum for Ridgeview. And perhaps they don't really need that because they've done it their own way. But I, th- I didn't know Mike. Did you know Mike? No, sadly not. He- um, yeah, I mean, they didn't come at it with a, a great sort of chest of, of cash either. It's a very, has always been, I think, a very tightly run business, Ridgeview, hasn't it? It has, yeah, yeah. It's And it's all based on, you know, sort of borrowing, expanding, you know. And then, I mean, I looked through the accounts of loads of loads of the businesses um and most of them you know they're not not they're not from a strictly business point of view particularly viable you know they're 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 sort of one creditor or the bank calling in the debt from going under um you know they have a lot of sympathetic creditors ridgeview aren't like that ridgeview they they borrow they expand they pay you know they all the growth is organic and they yeah they're if you wanted to 
think it's, I think they own it all themselves. But if you wanted to invest in an English wine business, Ridgeview would be the one to go for, just because it's clearly prof- so well run and, 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 and profitable, and, they, and grows on their own on, on their own terms. But they and don't they get the, they don't get wine as well, the of course. They do, and especially like the top end stuff, you know, the Blanc de Blanc needs a few years, but like the 2015 Blanc de Blanc was one of the best wines that I had on the trip. And then also, yeah, the, you know, they're just the non-vintage wines are very good wines. I think, yeah, I think, I think it's always going to be a perennial problem for them because they don't have the money to market the wines properly. And this is interesting because of the way the industry has changed. Um, I loved your reference in the book to uh, watercress barons and lettuce magnets. Um, And and this is uh, a a reference to the sort of money that's been made in bagged salads um, and probably a link, therefore, to Exton Park, I'm guessing. Uh, But but others, too, that people have brought a lot of money that they've made in something else completely into uh, English wine. Yeah, well, yeah. Mark Driver is the he's he's the man behind Rath Finney, and he's the sort of emblematic kind of money man. But also, you have like Richard Balfour Lynn with money from hotels. You know, went in went in with um, uh, was Balfour or, or at Hush Heath in the early two thousand and two. I think he planted, and then his rosé. I think I can't remember what the first vintage was two thousand seven something like that. You know, huge success. But they, yeah, they just brought a different kind of ethos to it. You know, they just, for, for their, well, I wouldn't say money was no object, but to begin with, they could, they could really splash it around and market it properly in a way that, or Gusborne, you know, the sort of Lord Ashcroft and those kind of people, they've turned it, I mean, I think Gusborne are brilliantly marketed, great wines, and they just look good. The pricing is, you know, it's a little high, but, they warrant it. And I think they're a very, uh, very astute business. Yes, that's another point you make somewhere in the book. Uh, the way it's been branded and marketed has changed so much. And I think of just off the top of my head, you know, Night Timber looks great. Gusborne, as you yeah. say, looks great. Um, Exton Parks wines that really fantastic. Coates and Seeley, Roebuck. These are all beautifully branded and look very, very pussy. Jacobson's another one. Really yeah. premium branding. And yet, actually, in the early days, it was a very different story, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, it was a lot more, lot more am- am- amateur. Well, I mean, if you go back to the really early days, you know, the sort of 60s, 70s, 80s, it was. You see the the Lamberhurst labels from the 80s. Oh, they look like they look like jam or something. You know, they look like something that some that someone's aunt has knocked up in the kitchen. And Lamberhurst were the biggest. You know, they were owned by Ken McAlpine. So they had money. You know, they weren't some little, you know, one, one room operation, but they look very, very amateurish. And it was like, it was Night Timber that changed that. They, their labels, they imported them all from, they were all printed in France. They were, they look a bit dated, the early Night Timber ones, but they were very, you know, they were like 80s, 90s, Champagne labels, lots of gold and black, and you know they look, they looked, they looked expensive. But now I think you don't really launch an English wine without thinking really seriously about everything about the look, the packaging, the marketing. I don't, I don't think people, people, people aren't doing it. So it was there was a kind of air of whimsy about the industry in the early days. I think Biddenden was founded because. Oh, what was her name? Is it Mary Barnes? Um, the son's called Julian Barnes, nothing to do with the novelist. 
And his mother heard a thing on Radio 4 about someone planting vines and they were they were apple growers. And they were like, we should give that a go, you know, and they did. And obviously they've built a great business out of it. But that's what it was like in the early days. And now people go in and they've got, you know, they've got a business plan, they've got a marketing plan, they've probably been to see a branding agency, a PR agency. And the whole thing is incredibly slick. The really big success story thus far, uh, because this is a story that is still being told, is obviously sparkling wine. But uh, you also clearly uh, reference still wines. And that really is an even newer phenomenon in terms of, of success, isn't it? Because, I mean, the first time I tasted an English still wine... Um, some years ago, admittedly, I, I think my reaction was bloody hell and it wasn't in a good way. So things have changed a lot on that front as well, haven't they? It's been spectacular. And I think that's the real story of the book. I would say, whereas um, sparkling wines, the kind of year zero was 96, 97, when Night Timber released its first wine. For, sparkling, for still wine, I'd say it was 2018. It was that really warm vintage and Gusborn made like a red, you couldn't believe it. And um, Danbury Ridge up in Essex, they their first vintages were 2018. People kind of were like, Chardonnay, we can make a Chardonnay that tastes spectacular. But even before, I mean, even before then, you know, I say 2018, but Ch- Chapel Down were, you know, they were they were the pioneers here with the Kits Coty range, like the, the the first Kits Coty Chardonnay. So this Kits Coty is this huge chalk down vineyard near Maidstone in Kent, and it's the premium line from Chapel Down, who are the biggest producer in the in the country. They released the first Kits Coty Chardonnay was twenty eleven, and I had a bottle recently, so you know tw- twelve years old. And it was really good, you know, proper sort of hazelnuts and lime and tropical fruit. So it was clearly possible before, but it was 2018, I think, where everyone woke up and we're like, you know, there's something happening here. The, the focus has been on the southeast, Kent, Sussex, Hampshire for sparkling. But actually, um, I, I wrote a column about it, uh, you know, a, 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 a year or so ago. And I, I, for me, you know, mention Essex and Tannin, and I'd think of a, you know, a salon or something. But actually, right. um, <laughs> it's it's Essex is is really starting to be known for its still wines, isn't it? It is, yeah, yeah. Well, I was just about to say the a Californian wine company has um, Jackson Family Vineyards has just has just announced that it's looking for looking for vineyards in Essex. And yeah, it's been phenomenal. That's where Essex has come from. People always talk about chalk and the South Downs and stuff. And Essex is sticky London clay. It's been incredible. Um, I mean, they've they've been growing vines there since the 60s with New Hall. And loads of people like Chapel Down were buying grapes from New Hall. I remember Owen Elias was saying the Bacchus that came from New Hall was the best. You know, it was the ripest he said he called it fat backers. The grapes were sort of big and ripe and, and stuff. But nobody was trying to make sort of premium wines in Essex until very, very recently. But what it's got is it's it's dry. For, for England, it's comparatively dry, whereas the West Country is wet. Essex, you can leave the grapes out until... Like what, I was speaking to Danbury Ridge, and they said that in 2021, which was appalling vintage all over England... You know, we just basically didn't get a summer. They had a really nice autumn and they were harvesting the grapes at the end of October for some of their wines. In fact, I think 
Charlie, Charlie Holland said they were on bonfire night, they were still harvesting grapes. And you can only do that in Essex because it's so dry. Everywhere else, they, they would rot. And you've got these clay soils that warm up and they hold the heat. I don't know if you met John Atkinson from Danbury Ridge. Danbury Ridge are the, the sort of, you know, the emblematic producer. They've got, they've got a, a millionaire, billionaire, very rich man behind them. The, bunk, the Bunker family, he made a lot of money in, in finance and planted in Essex with the dream just to make the best possible still wines. And John Atkinson is consultant, and he describes the clay as like as like Petrus. You know, he gets very into clay. Does John Atkinson? But the results just speak for themselves. You know, the the, the, the ripeness and the alcohol levels. You know, thirteen thirteen and a half percent natural alcohol, no sugar added. Beautiful wines, and you know they're very expensive. But you know, Californian wines are very expensive. You know, so it's sort of yeah. It's, I, I found I found the still thing so exciting. And I think that 2018 vintage inspired like Balfour and now doing, you know, uh, Fergus Elias, Owen Elias' son, is making some spectacular still wines at, at Balfour. And then little producers like Black Book in London or Gutter and Stars up in Cambridge, mainly buying Essex fruit, you know, just great, great wines. Um, not expensive. I mean, not expensive by English wine standards. So I think the still wine thing is is coming. And I think people will get used to English Chardonnay very, very quickly. Yeah. A word for Chris Wilson at Gutter and Stars in his uh, disused windmill in Cambridge because his wines, yeah, with Essex fruit are, are, are really fantastic. I mean, people do talk quite seriously about parallels with Burgundy, don't they? Well, the uh, Janine Bunker um, from the family that owned Danbury Ridge said she went out and met Olivier Laflave I've just pronounced that wrong, haven't I? Le, F- Le Flave. Um, sorry, my Le Flave. French pronunciation is mm. awful. But anyway, he tried some of the Danbury Ridge wines and said, we should be worried. These are the kind of wines that I was making in the 70s. And, you, you know, you, you've probably had those sort of burgundies, which are nudging 14.5%. They don't really mm-hmm. taste like burgundy anymore. You know, and you're thinking some of those warmer vineyards in, 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 in the Côte de Nuit might, you know, might have to stop you know, might, uh, they might have to do something drastic soon. So it's very early days. You know, you don't want to get carried away with the hyperbole. These wines are made in tiny quantities. But there's no doubt the potential's there. I don't think you can argue when you try a bottle of Danbury Ridge. I don't think you can really argue with the quality. It's They're, they're clearly onto something. And you explore organic winemaking a little as well. And if you told me 10 years ago that anyone would try to make organic wine in this climate, you know, you need, arguably need chemicals uh, to uh, deal with uh, you know, damp conditions. And we have damp conditions aplenty here. And yet that's now happening as well, isn't it? It has, yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's definitely happening. Well, Davenport, Will Davenport was doing it in the 90s. I think he switched over to full organic in Kent and Sussex in about 2000. But he was a kind of a lone wolf because it just requires so much commitment to it. And what's re- what was really interesting, though, is the sort of the whole organic thing, which, you know, is quite complicated. You do have people who just go... Well, I would, but I don't like the idea of spraying with copper sulfate to to counteract mildew. So I'd actually rather use synthetic fungicides um, and not be organic. You know, try and do everything with as minimum of, of um, 
harm to the soil as possible. So it's very, it's very interesting, the sort of broad church of sustainability. And I've tried very hard just to let people talk and explain themselves and not get on my, you know, on my soapbox about organics or biodynamics. Um, because I think most people are on board that you need to look after the immediate environment and that poisoning the soil is not a very good idea. But there are different ways of doing that. Now, what, what was what was sort of fascinating is something like herbicide. You know, you, you, you go on a press trip with other wine writers and they're always looking for signs of herbicide use. And they're like, oh, look, they're using herbicide. They must be, they must be terrible people and make awful wine. And you, I spoke with some very kind of sincere, intelligent people who said, actually, a small amount of herbicide once a year is easily the best option. Because if you're doing it mechanically, you're compacting the soil, you're giving off CO2 from diesel. So all things considered, I'd rather use herbicide once a year, but not like mulluring the whole ground with it. But, you know, so it's, a, it, it's one of those things that I kind of realized was so much more complicated and interesting than the sort of rather kind of, dare I say it, kind of tabloid approach you get on social media towards yes. organics yeah. and sustainability. And it's really... Uh, wonderful to read you kind of discovering these things for yourself uh, in the way that you write as well. You're not, obviously it is in black and white because it's a book, but you know, you're not black and white (laughs) in your approach. Um, It doesn't, you use humour a lot in your writing um, and it's great, really refreshing. Does it ever get you in trouble? I don't know. I I think it might, yeah, there's a couple of things in the book. I think I've I've slightly (laughs) taken the piss out of quite a few wine writers and i hope they you know they take it in good stead you know but the few times i've done it they're all very you know um well thought of wine writers who are far more prestigious than i am and i think they could probably take a bit of ribbing uh, but it'll be interesting it'll be interesting to see if they read the book and what their response is yes uh, actually let's just talk about your own wine journey because you were wine columnist for the lady magazine uh, which uh, my my uh, dear aunt used to read so i'm i'm actually quite familiar with it uh, not that i i don't think i ever picked it up but uh, it was then edited by rachel johnson who must get very fed up with always being described as the sister of boris johnson but that's what she's had to live with uh, like her brother um, an accomplished writer and editor and a rather less successful politician arguably what made you kind of go to the lady to write about wine yeah, the the wine thing was if you've got if you've got five minutes, I will try and explain it to you. I was I worked in the wine trade a long, long time ago and really loved wine, but I kind of thought my career is not really in wine, and I went to work in publishing for a long time. But I was always interested in wine, and I used to go to the wine society tastings and stuff with my father. And I got to the stage where I kind of I wanted to you know I had things I thought I had to I wanted to say, and this was two thousand and ten, and I started a blog as people did in those days. You know, nowadays, I'd be on Instagram being a, you know, a communicator or something. But in those days, you started a blog. One of the, I was friends with, or I am friends with this sort of satirist called Craig Brown, who writes for Private Eye um, from, my, from my publishing days. And, and I sent him the blog and he was quiet for a long time. And then he emailed me saying, this is really funny. I normally hate wine writing, but this is great. I'm going to tell Rachel Johnson because I know that she's on the lookout for a wine writer. Um, so I got eventually I got a call from Rachel Johnson saying, you know, do you want to come in and talk to me? So I went and met her at the lady offices. At the time, they had this huge building in, um, in Covent Garden on Bedford Street. And she 
we went out to her office and she said, right, do you want to be our features editor? And I said, I, I, I don't know anything about features. And she goes, nobody does. I don't even, I don't know anything about running a magazine. And here I am running a magazine. And then she goes, how about wine writing? Could you do that? And I said, I, th- I think I could. I, and at the time I knew almost nothing about wine. You know, I, I, didn't hadn't done a WSET. I was in, worked in the wine trade, but that was ten years before, and I just took it on and did it for about five years, and it was great fun. I mean, I probably got loads of stuff wrong. No, I did get loads of stuff wrong, um, but it was really fun, and that opened a lot of doors for me. And for a long time, I'd had an idea to do a book about the English or British influence on wine, and that was something I've been thinking about for years. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to do that. So I did that. That was Empire of Booze. And that's that's been great because it sort of came out in 2016. And it did okay, but it's never really died. It's sort of like every so often it kind of flares up again and I get asked to appear on, you know, a podcast or something to talk about it. So that was fun. So, yeah, it was really just starting a blog and then getting picked up by Rachel Johnson led to a whole new career. And at the time I worked in publishing and I dropped that in 2015 and became a full-time full-time writer which has been you know, quite quite scary but fun you know as you know you know you you came in from a different industry into the wine world and it's no shortage of fun there is no shortage of fun it's uh, yeah i i always say it's my midlife crisis but it's a very enjoyable one it could have been yeah i could have bought an old mg or something so um so yeah uh, it's uh, well i did do that but anyway that's another story back to the the book as we conclude because um a couple of things um stick out that you you address with english wine and one of them is absolutely absurd but we still don't really know what to call it do we no it's sort of crazy that that um well first of all there's the sort of strange thing that most people if they see a wine from britain they're happy to say that it's british wine but wine people will go no you can't call it british wine british wine is made from grape juice from cyprus or something you know because you can label imported grape juice that's made into wine in britain as british wine and then there's the what you call English sparkling wine. It needs a name, you know, like Carver or, dare I say it, Champagne. So that's a big problem. And then that's complicated by Charmat. You know, do people know the difference? You know, is it going to muck things up? Do they care even if it's Charmat method? Oh, God, no, no, they don't care at all. No, pe- pe- people in public, you know, honestly, they couldn't care less. They just... um yeah, it's it's a, it's a really difficult one. So it you know English wine sort of works, English sparkling wine. It's not very catchy, is it? All those sort of things like let's call it Britang or Britannia, Britpop, Britfizz. You know, it's sort of I don't know. Maybe, you know, I was going to say we'll get there one day, but you know we probably won't. I don't think anyone will come up with a name. It's just like there's no proper name for you know Tasmanian sparkling wine doesn't have a doesn't have a catchy name, does it? But they seem to do all right. Yes. Uh, and, and knowing this country, I, I doubt we'll ever um, alight on one thing because we probably won't be able to uh, uh, agree on it. Uh, just to round off, when you started writing the book, you still, you admit right at the end, and I, I don't think I'm spoiling people's fun. I'm not revealing the ending here. You have this stereotype in your head and you call it branded gilet for the kind of people <laughs> that you are likely to encounter, which made me laugh but you seem to have changed your tune on the kind of characters behind english and, and welsh wine yeah well I, yeah, the, the brandy jelly thing is a reference to it, it all being a bit corporate but but the interesting thing is that that english wine does 
appear quite corporate because you've got, as we alluded to, all the great branding and, you know, golf umbrellas and buses and stuff. But it's still a very small industry and it's largely run by families or, you know, one person is in charge. So when you speak to to him or, or her, there's no... PR person in the way. It's not like talking to a, a, a spokesman for Moet or Glenn Morangy or, you know, one of those kind of people. It's actually quite a small business. So you can talk to the boss or the winemaker and he or she will just give it to you completely straight. There's very little, um, there's li- very little PR, which was a gift. And then, of course, there's all the little people as well who are just brilliant, like, um, the people at Flint in Norfolk or, 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 or Chris at Gutter and Stars, who we mentioned, or Adrian at, at Westwell, you know, they're just, they just tell you exactly what they think and it's off, or, you know, Stephen Skelton. So there's just all these very, very opinionated people who've got, who've got a lot to say, um, which was a gift. And I, and I, th- and I don't know whether the, 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 what the industry will be like in, five or ten years people might be a lot more guarded by then so this kind of book might not be possible yeah interesting thought to uh, uh leave it uh, you mentioned dermot Segru earlier one of my favorite episodes of this podcast episode 63 my chat with uh dermot one of the most successful uh winemakers uh, in this country as you said he's an irishman um and uh, fantastic uh, wines fantastic uh, chat as well but uh, that's uh, another matter as i said i hugely enjoyed this book uh, henry i think it's um brilliantly told and it's 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 such a compelling story to start off with so um good luck with it i'm sure it'll do very well and um thanks so much for taking the time out to talk to us here on the drinking hour oh no it was a great pleasure thank you david the drinking hour with david kermode in partnership with club onologique the world through the lens of wine and spirits Well, let's round off as ever with some medal winners from the IWSC Hall of Fame. And the theme, unsurprisingly, this week is England. And this year, the top medals were for sparkling wines. Uh, Sparkling judging was overseen by S.E. Avalan, M.W., a world authority on such wines. Her scores can shift the price of some top cuvées of champagne. And uh, traditional method is very much her shtick. Congratulations to Rames, English Sparkling Classic Brute 2018, winner of a gold medal. Uh, 2018, as uh, Henry said, was one of the greatest English vintages, of course, uh, thus far from that sizzling summer. Uh, The judges describe a light, youthful and delicate nose with fresh zest of lemon and lime. The palate is particularly elegant with great acidity and lots of secondary aromas of toast. Offers excellent balance and a pleasingly long finish, they say. A gold, too, for one of the other great English pioneers, Hattingley Valley, classic reserve, brute non-vintage. Uh, Well done to uh, them. The judges said a smashing, aromatically expressive wine with refined perlage. It first exhibits Sicilian lemon, orange blossom and hints of toast, leading to a concentrated palate laden with baked apple, warm bread and almond milk. Seamless, vibrant, textured and persistent and a beautiful, complex tasting note as well there from the judges. 
uh, winning uh, a well-deserved silver medal, Langham Wine Estate, where uh, Tommy Grimshaw is uh, an experimental pioneer. He's referenced in Henry's book as well. Uh, He's a frequent medal winner at the IWSC as well. And uh, the Langham Pinot Noir Brut Nature 2019 won 91 points, with the judges saying... Complex and expressive, intense aromas of apple and citrus with bready notes, a lively palate of zippy lemon and brioche, and beautifully creamy mousse showing great balance and length. Louis Pommery, Brut Non-Vintage, also won a silver medal. Uh, This is the cuvee that really launched the Champenois into the English market. Uh, Henry talks about how Pommery were the first to actually get Uh, an English sparkling onto the market. And this one won 90 points, Um, a cuvee I uh, always really enjoy for its fresh apple character. But never mind my own tasting note. Here's the all-important one, an elegant, perfumed, seductive wine, revealing grapefruit, acacia and lemons on the nose, then joined by flint, pears and minerals on the palate. Well-integrated, clean and stylish on the finish. And finally, a silver medal winning rosé from another of the early pioneers, uh, Wyfold Vineyard Rosé Brut 2018, is from the Lathwaite stable, um, produced in the Chilterns. Uh, in my humble opinion, one of the uh, top rosé sparklers coming out of England, and the judging panel gave it 91 points. Here's the tasting note. An expressive nose offers delicious notes of ripe strawberry, savoury marmite undertones. Harmonious and refreshing, the palate brings more strawberry shortcake and an elegant, lingering finish. Exquisite, they said. And that's it for another edition of Drinking Hour. My thanks to Henry Jeffries. Uh, do... Uh, Look out for vines from uh, a cold climate. It really is uh, a great read. I hope you enjoyed the chat. You can follow us. Uh, We're Food FM Radio on Instagram and X, as we now know the dearly departed Twitter. And I am Mr Venusaurus on uh, both Instagram and X. Uh, Do also check out Club Analogique, uh, where you'll find uh, my monthly wine column at clubanalogique.com. Until next time, though, it's goodbye. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.